when he said, I'm going to build something that the gates of hell can't prevail against. Because we've been a part of different churches and done all kind of things. And, and, and I, begin to, I begin to ask myself, are these things that we're doing what Jesus had in his heart when he said, I'm going to build something that the gates of hell can't prevail against? And if they're not, if they're not producing what Jesus had in his heart that he wanted to produce, the kind of people and the kind of followers that he wanted to produce, then how much longer, this is the question that I ask myself, how much longer are we going to keep doing these things if they're not effective in producing what Jesus wanted to produce? Amen? Amen. It's, a, it's really a simple business principle that you always weigh what you're doing against what you want to produce. You have metrics in place that you measure things. And, and so churches ought to have that. They ought to have ways that several times a year they sit down and they weigh out what they're producing. And all the money and effort and volunteers and time that we're putting into things, is it producing what Jesus wanted to produce? Well, what did Jesus want to produce? If you go over to Revelation, he talked to seven churches there and he gave a message to each one of those churches. But in each one of those churches, even though every message was different, there were two common things that Jesus wanted out of every one of those churches. Number one, he said to him who overcomes, to every one of them. So number one, he's looking for overcomers, Amen. not undergoers, not barely get alongers, but he's looking for overcomers, Amen. people who understand how to overcome. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, and so we got to understand how to live by faith and walk by faith if we're going to be overcomers in this life. Amen? Amen. So there's a, there's a discipling, a growing process to grow us into what Jesus wanted when he said, I'm going to build this church, and that is a bunch of overcomers. Amen. So Revolution Church is a church that's dedicated to preaching and teaching and doing everything that they do to produce what Jesus wanted in his heart, and that is overcomers. God's heart for you is to overcome. Whatever you're facing today, God wants you to overcome it. He's made a way for you to overcome it. Amen? And then the second thing that he wants to produce is, he said this to every one of those churches, he said, to him who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So he's, he wants Spirit-led sons. If you're a daughter, you're a son also. Sons of God. He wants spirit-led sons. He wants sons that know how to follow the Holy Spirit. Because we're not under the law anymore. Amen. See, the law guided Israel. But Jesus, I'm going to, we're going to talk about this in a minute. But Jesus nailed the law to the cross and moved it out of the way. So what do we have to guide us today? The Holy Spirit. Amen. The Holy Spirit. And if you don't know the Holy Spirit and know how to follow the Holy Spirit, then you're not moving into the life that God wants you to move into. Right. Overcomers, spirit-led sons. It's the purpose, it's the underlying purpose of every church. Every church has a vision of different things because they're, they're in communities that are different and cultures that are different. So that makes us different in the way that we do what we do, but we're after the same results. And that is overcomers and spirit-led sons. Amen? Amen? Well, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. I don't really start preaching very much. You can ask my wife, seldom do I start preaching out of the Old Covenant, even though I love the Old Covenant, and I love reading it, and I love learning from it. I don't, I don't live by it, because I don't live under that covenant anymore. I live under the New Covenant, like you, and we have a New Covenant established on better promises, the Scripture says, 
And so we should spend most of our time in the new covenant, but we, there are things that we can learn from the old. And God is so cool because he, has, he, he, he is a master at integrating symbolism and types and shadows and, and things that, are, that, that speak to us today way back thousands of years ago and the things that happened back then. And so this is one of those things. And so I, I want to I share something today. I believe, the, I believe this is what the Lord has for us today in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So, Father, we just break the bread of life with expectancy and with faith, trust in the Holy Spirit to give us utterance to just speak from your heart and love from your heart and communicate from your heart, Lord. And we thank you today that people, all of us today, will be built up in a way that we can be overcomers and spirit-led sons in your kingdom in these last days. We give you glory for it. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 6 and verse 1. We're going to start right there. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, I think they're going to put it on the screen. But uh, it's better from the Bible. Amen. That's your sword. <clears throat> I love to hunt. And I've got weapons that I hunt with. And I, each one of those weapons is custom for me. It's sighted in just for me. I have a 44 Magnum that's about this long. And people gave, my church gave it to me, so it's, it's holy, <laughs> right? And, and so you, you, you guys were there when they, when they gave us that. <clears throat> and uh, that thing is sighted in just for me. I call it the beast. <laughs> and what, whatever I'm shooting at is the mark of the beast. <laughs> your, Bible is your, your Bible is your sword, your 44, Amen. Learn to use it well. Customize it for you. 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 1. And David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, <clears throat> to, bring up from, to bring up there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart. Everybody say new cart. And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which, is, uh, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. How many of you know new is not always best? God's doing a new thing. But there are some things that God did a long time ago that are still relevant to today. Amen. Don't throw out the old just because you're young. Amen. <clears throat> So, and if you'll, if you'll read the Old Testament, these names will help you speak in tongues better. If you'll, if you'll learn. <laughs> Abinadab. I mean, who's named Abinadab today, you know? But it does help you talk in tongues. They drove the new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. He was in the front. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood and harp and stringed instruments and tambourines and sistrums and on cymbals. Verse 6, and when they came to Nacon, Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, 
And God struck him there for his error, and he died there before the ark of God. And David became angry. Anybody ever got mad at God? Yeah. <clears throat> God, you know, aren't you glad that God doesn't get mad at you? Yeah. <clears throat> and so he, David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. What are you doing, God? And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now, the ark was God's presence. In the Old Testament, nobody was born again. Nobody was saved. Everybody was, uh, 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 you know, a sinner by nature. And so they didn't have the presence of God like we have the presence of God today. In the Old Testament, it was enter into his gates with thanksgiving, enter into his courts with praise. It's not like that anymore. We don't have a presence of God that we enter into anymore. The presence of God is on the inside of us by His Spirit. Amen? So we don't enter into the presence of God. I know that makes you have to change a lot of the songs that we sing. But we don't enter into the presence of God. We respond to the presence of God by faith now because He's on the inside of us. And so this is the presence of God back then, and David is concerned because he wants that presence. David was a man that loved the presence of God. He wasn't a perfect person. He made a lot of mistakes, but one good thing he had going for him, he loved the presence of God. And he said, how can I get this presence back in, into our midst? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, Gittite is a Philistine. Everybody say, Obed-Edom Obed -Edom was a cotton-picking Philistine. All right? So, just to give you a little background. Verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all the things that belonged to him. So everything that belonged to Obed-Edom, the glory of God was on. The, the favor of God was on. His children, his livestock, everything was producing like crazy. And the blessing of God was flowing like crazy. And the word gets back to, to David. David hears about it. So David went. He said, i got to go get this thing. i got to get this thing, and i got to bring it in here because... It's not fair that Obed's getting all the blessings. He's a cotton-picking Philistine. He's not even a, a, a Jew. He's not even in, in Israel. He's a Philistine, but the blessings of God are on his house. He's getting blessed in everything that he does. And, and so David went and brought the, up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark Everybody say, those bearing the ark. Now before, they put it on a new cart. Now, the priests are bearing the ark on their shoulders, which was the way the law said it was supposed to be done. So David had this idea, you know, he wants to be relevant. He wants to be cool. So he says, we're going to build the ark a brand new cart. And we're going to put these two guys, they're, they're heavy hitters, Ahia and Uzzah. One's going to, they're going to drive this thing. And, and we're going to bring this thing into Jerusalem with style. Well, a lot of times style has nothing to do with the glory. Amen. And so he says here uh, in verse 13, 
And so it was, now watch this, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces or six steps, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. So every time they went, now picture this, the priests are carrying the ark. One, two, three, four, five, six, kill animals. One, two, now this is all the way from Obed-Edom's house all the way back into Jerusalem. Why are they doing this? Because it's the way the law said they were supposed to do it. It was directions that God gave them as to how to move this thing. So verse 14, then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now here's the question that I want us to, to, to jump on this morning. Why, was, why did the ark bless the house of Obed-Edom? And why did the ark curse Israel when they tried to move it the first time? Because all David wanted to do was get the presence back into Jerusalem. But he wasn't doing it the right way. So Uzzah reached up and grabbed the ark and pow, God smited him down because that, that, was, that was the judgment of the law coming on Uzzah. Yeah, it was the curse. They did it wrong. And, unless you, and God already told them, and if you do all these things that I tell you to do, you'll be blessed going in, blessed going out, head not the tail, above and not beneath. You know, you're going to be blessed if you do everything that I tell you to do. But if you don't do everything I tell you to do, all of these curses will come on you. Now, God, God wasn't sitting there going, I can't wait till you mess up because I'm going to smack you. No, he just, he gave them a system to live by. He gave them things to do. And as long as they did it right, they could have the blessings of God. So David brings the ark in. He does it wrong. Something bad happens. And he's mad at God because all he wanted to do was get the ark back into Jerusalem. So they're sitting there thinking about it, scratching their head. And over here is Obed-Edom's house. He said, let's put the ark over there and let's ask this guy, would you mind if we put the ark in your house? And Obed-Edom's like, yeah, bring it on in here. They bring it in there. Now this thing is overlaid and inlaid with gold. It's got cherubim on top of it that are made with gold. So this is not just some cheap piece of furniture. I mean, this is something really expensive. And it is the presence of God. It is where God chose to dwell. And so why did the blessings come on Obed-Edom? And why did the cursing come on Israel when they didn't do everything right? Anybody want to give it a shot? Huh? Don't be afraid. No, nobody's going nobody's gonna to persecute you if you get it wrong. Except God. No, I'm teasing. Here's why. The reason Obed-Edom was blessed because he was not under the law. There was no law. The law was given to Israel and Israel alone. So when you took the presence of God and you parked it in somebody's house that they didn't have the law in between them and God, there was nothing that they could do or not do that would cause them to have peace or no peace with God. When the law is out of the way, then there's not. See, if you went out on a, uh, if we had a road in Henry County and all of the roads had speed limits, but this one road didn't have a speed limit. 
and you could get your car out on that road and drive as fast as you want to, and you could pass 20 policemen on the way, and you could just wave at them with no conviction or condemnation that you're breaking the law because there is no law. Amen. So when there is no law, there is no transgression of the law. And Obed-Edom stood in a position with God, even though he was a cotton-picking Philistine, even though he had no covenant with God, there was no law that he had to obey to be right with God. So God had to bless him because there was nothing to keep him from, nothing to hinder the blessing from getting to him. There was no law. The law was the reason for the veil in the temple. Everybody remember the temple? You know, you came into the outer court, and then there's, there's the, uh, the, uh, the altar and the brazen laver, and then you came into the inner court. This is the Old Testament temple. And on the, in the inner court, there was the, the uh, uh, candle, the uh, menorah, is that what they call it? And then there's the table of showbread over on the other side, the altar of incense, and then there's this huge veil. And behind the veil is the Ark of the Covenant, the law was the reason the veil was there. Because if the people were exposed to the ark, if Israel was exposed to the ark without a veil, it would have killed them too. It would have killed the high priest except for that one time a year when he did everything he had to do, all the washings, all the, the things that he had to do, the sprinkling of blood and everything, and then they tied that rope around his leg just in case he didn't do everything right because they weren't going to go back there and pull him out or they'd die too. So they tied a rope and, and, and put bells on, on the end of his, his robe, and if they stopped hearing those bells, they knew they better start pulling on the rope because the high priest is dead. He didn't do something right. Because under the law, you couldn't have the blessings of God unless you did everything right. But if there was no law, there was nothing to keep the blessings from coming. So Obed-Edom's house was blessed, blessed, blessed because the law was out of the way. Are you following me what I'm saying? So the veil protected the, 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 the priest and the people from, from, from the glory of God. And, and, and protected, you know, vice versa. That's why it was there. How many of you remember when Jesus was raised from the dead? That thing was torn in two. There was a reason why it was torn in two. So that the blessings of God could get to you. And so that you could get to the presence of God. Why? Because the law was taken out of the way. Follow me here. Now go with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I love the book of Romans. It's, it's, uh, it's revelation of the new covenant unlike any other book. And then on top of that, you've got Galatians, which was a church that got a hold of the revelation of righteousness that came from Paul in the book of Romans, but then they got off course. And so the whole book of Galatians is written to get that church back on course back in line with the blessings of God. And so Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, he said, what does all this have to do with us today? Look at Romans 6 verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. 
Let's just say that. Let's just say that a few times. Say it with me. For sin shall not have dominion over me. Say it again. For sin shall not have dominion over me. Is that true? Can you live in a place where sin doesn't have authority and dominion over you? And every time it calls your name, you run after it? Can you live in a place like that? Well, this scripture says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? For you are not under law, but under grace. For you are not under law, but under grace. So, we are not under the law today. Now, Paul had some things to say about the law. He said the law was good, and the law was holy. But the problem was, not that there was a problem with the law, the problem was man did not have the power to obey it in his flesh. He didn't have the strength to do everything that God said he could do. In fact, God never gave Israel the law to make them righteous. God gave Israel the law to show them that they couldn't do it in their own strength. So he gave them the law, and then he set up this incredible sacrifice and priesthood system that they could go to the law, see that they missed it, see that they couldn't do it, run to the sacrifices and the priesthood of the Old Testament, and they could do these, these, these sacrifices, and they could have access to the blessings and the presence of God through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And that sacrificial system in every way pointed to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Every lamb that was slain in that sacrificial system was a type and a shadow of the final lamb that would be slain. That no more sacrifices would exist after this one sacrifice would come. And it all painted a picture of Jesus. And the reason God did that is because the Messiah would show up one day and they would look at the Messiah and they would look at the sacrificial system and they would recognize that this man has come from God to fulfill all of this. Now we know that the, the scripture says the Jews, that Jesus came unto his own and his own did not recognize him. They didn't receive him. They didn't understand that because they had lost a lot of what God had given them by the time Jesus showed up. So, Jesus fulfilled everything under the law for us. Amen. Flip over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. You know why there's no condemnation? Because there's no law. You can only be condemned if there's a law. Right? right? You can only be condemned if you... If you have an awareness that you're continually missing it. You can only have condemnation if you're standing in the power of your own flesh trying to do what you think you need to do to stand right before God. Are you here? Look at verse 3, Romans 8. Verse 3. For what the law could not do. Everybody say the law couldn't do it. it. Why couldn't it? For what the law could not do in that it was weak through or because of the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh 
that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, trying to be right in our own strength, but who walk in the Spirit, who are made righteous by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Now, I minister on righteousness a lot wherever I go, and I always ask this question, I'll ask it here. How many of you right now, you feel really righteous? One. How many of you believe that you are righteous? A few more. A few more. Still, still some more. Because here's the thing. When you, ask, when you use the word righteousness, immediately people start thinking about their behavior. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I did some things yesterday. That's really why I'm here today. <laughs> I want to get it right. Uh, and we treat church kind of like Catholicism, you know. We think we have to come and do our, you know, all, all our things, you know, uh, and then and then we feel a little bit better about ourselves because people that believe that are trapped in the power of their flesh, and they don't understand righteousness. Now, here's the thing: for thousands of years, mankind has been trying to be right with God. For thousands of years, every cult. Every denomination that is off track, not all of them, but everyone that's off track, every attempt, everything has been an, an attempt to be right with God. Nobody ever created a cult because let's just create something that's going to kill us and send us to hell. But most of them happen because man had a desire to be right with Almighty God. He had a desire to be right. And so, because the, the scripture says, when you're ignorant of God's righteousness, you seek to establish your own righteousness. So, if you're not aware of how God makes people righteous, then you'll establish your own way, your own plan, your own rules, your own models, your own, your, your own blueprints of how you think you need to be righteous. And so, you'll read your Bible to try to be more righteous. You'll witness to people to try to be more righteous. You'll go to church to try to be more righteous. You'll not rob banks and not kill people, and it's all because you don't want to be unrighteous. And so your whole life is caught up in this system of trying to be right with God, and you're doing it in the power of your flesh. And so when somebody mentions the word righteousness, you immediately think probably of things that you've done wrong that that disqualify you from the blessings of God and from the presence of God because I, I don't do everything right. See, it, it, it's an awareness of yourself instead of an awareness of Jesus. We sing that song, and I love that song. It's all about Jesus. Amen. It's all about Him. It's, everything is about Him. <clears throat> and, but, but we tend to make things about ourselves, And so for thousands of years, Man has been trying to be made right with God or be, do something. There, there, are, there are tribes of people in South America that will take people and, and, be, and take, they'll take the book of John out of the Bible and they'll tie them up and they'll beat them with the book of John because they think it makes them more righteous. There are people in this country that ride bicycles hundreds of miles and knock on doors because they think it makes them righteous. Dress up in black pants and ties and white shirts and knock on your doors. And the reason they're doing it is because they think it's an obligation that they have. And if they don't do it, they'll be unrighteous. If they do it, they'll be righteous. 
You say, well, isn't that crazy? But yet there's some crazy things in some of our own minds that we think we do, we have to do to be right with God. And so we're in this cycle of trying to be right with God. And we're doing all these things to try to be right with God. And we've got to make sure that we've checked off our list and we've done everything that we're supposed to do. And so we're, we're going to church. You know, going to church is a great thing, but it don't make you righteous. Right. Reading the Bible is an imperative thing that you should do, but it, you shouldn't do it because it makes you righteous. Amen. And if you're trying to do those things, if you're caught up in the cycle of those things, you're consistently short-circuiting the grace of God, which is God's power given to you, meant to be given to you, to cause you to be able to do things in a supernatural way. Amen. So you're caught up in a natural flesh way, and you're trying to, so Jesus showed up on the scene, and he said, okay, stop, stop, stop. We're going to settle this whole thing right now. For thousands of years, you've been trying to be made right with me. You've been trying to be righteous with me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my righteousness, and I'm going to give it to you as a gift. Amen. So here's my righteousness. How do you respond to something like that? The only, there's only one way that you can respond to a gift, and that is receive it. But, 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 but I've got all these things in my life. Just take the gift. Well, what, 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 just take the gift. Well, what, what about last year or last month? And, and you know, I, I, I've got all these things that I've done. and I'll, Just take the gift. Because here's what's going to happen. When you receive the gift of righteousness by faith, grace begins to operate in you to produce a righteous life. It'll teach you what's right. It'll teach you what's wrong. It'll lead you in freedom. And you won't be under the obligation of the law. You'll be under grace and you'll be free from the power of sin. Amen. Nobody ever stopped sinning because somebody told them it was wrong. Right. Didn't give anybody the power to quit. But people receive the power to quit when they believe who God says they are. And so today, God says about you, that he made Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21, to be sin, who knew no sin, that you might be made the righteousness of God. Amen. So let me ask the question again. How many of you are righteous? Amen. Well, God's moving. A few more. <laughs> Not a trick question. So here's what the scripture says. The Bible says. Everybody said the Bible says. Bible. That they, Romans 5.17, they that receive abundance of grace, and the gift of righteousness, everybody say gift, yes. will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. How many of you have received Jesus as the Lord of your life? Amen. I mean, he's Lord. You've received him. He offered you salvation. You received it. You confessed with him as Lord, and now you're born again. How many of you believe that? Amen. How many of you are not going to raise your hand no matter what I say? <laughs> I mean, you're just going <laughs> to... So you receive Jesus, right? Amen. Do you know that what you really receive when you get born again is you receive his righteousness. Amen. The gift that you receive, it's a gift of salvation. It saves you. But the reason why it saves you is it makes you righteous. Amen. So let me ask you again. How many of you are righteous? Okay, God's really moving now. <laughs> You're, let me ask you this. How many of you are as righteous as Jesus. I see less people raise their hand on that. Well, here's what we just got through telling you. That Jesus gave you 
his righteousness. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a level of righteousness that's equal to some lowly angel in heaven or some saint on the earth. They said, I'm going to give you the righteousness of God. I'm going to give you the righteousness of Jesus. So if he gave you the righteousness of Jesus, how righteous are you? You can't get any more righteous than you are right now. You can't grow in righteousness. You can, how can you grow? That's like, that's like saying, okay, you're human, but I want you to grow in being a human. No, you're human. You're as human. And, and, and your color is, is black, mine's white. What if somebody came up to you and said, you need to grow in being black? You would, you would think, man, are you, are you off your rocker? How do you grow in being white or grow in being, you're either white or you're black. You can't grow in that. Well, you're either righteous or you're not. You either haven't received Jesus or you have and you're made righteous by the work of the Spirit. Not by anything that you did. You didn't get cleaned up. You didn't get righteous. You didn't, you didn't get things right with God. You received things. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. While we were undone and, and ignorant and rebellious and didn't care, that's when he died for us because he loves us so much. And so we receive the gift of righteousness and we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And here's what God does. God came to the earth. He obeyed the law in all of its entirety for you. So you wouldn't have to. Now, not that he doesn't want you to do what's right and what's wrong. But in order to be righteous, you don't have to obey the law. You're made righteous apart from the law, Amen. Romans says. And, and look what it says. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he condemns him in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in me. I'm righteous. And if I'll believe that, and if I'll begin to declare that over my life and renew my mind with it, then the power of grace begins to work in my life, and I begin to live in the reality of that righteousness. Anybody that said, well, if I believe that, I, you can do whatever you want to do. You're righteous apart from anything you do. Does that mean you can do whatever you want to do? That's ignorant of what righteousness really is. Paul answered that in Romans 6. He said, God forbid, you don't understand. You're not getting this. We've died to the old man. We're resurrected in Christ. We've been given a new image, a new uh, uh, inner uh, being of righteousness. I am righteousness. Every fiber of my cell, every part of my being is righteous now. I am the righteousness of God. And here's what, here's what, here's what happened. Now go with me to Colossians chapter 2. Glory to God. What this does is, is it does the same thing that it did for Obed-Edom. It opens up the door for the glory and the presence and the blessing of God to be in your life every day without you having to maintain it and earn it and produce it. There's some people in here this morning, aren't you tired of trying to produce the results that you see that you could have in God? Aren't you tired of trying to produce that?
Because it's supposed to flow in your life. There's supposed to be a rhythm of grace in your life. Fruit doesn't grow on a tree with effort. Have you ever seen fruit growing on a tree? <clears throat> and you walked up to it, and the apple's growing on the tree. And you look at that tree, and that tree's going, Ah, oh, produced an apple. It was hard, but look at this apple. Glory be to me. I produced an apple. See, that's what happens when you're trying to produce. When you, if you do produce anything, you get all self-righteous about it. But you walk up to a tree, and it's just growing. It's, there's, there's a rest. It's planted where it needs to be planted. It's created to produce something by God himself. And God himself doesn't even have to get involved in the process. When God said on the sixth day, it is finished and it is good, an apple tree produced an apple without God getting involved in the process. Pear trees produced pears without God getting up off the throne and saying, you know, that looks like it's struggling. I better get up and help it. And the power of righteousness in you is designed to produce fruit in you without the power of your flesh having to get involved with striving to produce it. Amen. It's a new nature. You're a new species of being. You've got God on the inside of you. You've got righteousness on the inside of you. The problem is you might not have known about it, so you haven't been excited about it and you haven't been expecting it. You're trying to get up and help the apple tree. And the apple tree don't need no help. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you're plugged into me, you're going to bear fruit. you got to be plugged into Jesus. And when we say plugged into Jesus, we're talking about being plugged into his finished work. His work that is completed. When God finished creation, the scripture says, on the seventh day, he rested. And all this is a type and shadow. When Jesus finished his work, he said, it is finished he was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father's right hand, and sat down. Why did he sat down? Why did he sit down? No need to work anymore. When you come in from a day of work and you're tired, what's the first thing you want to do? Sit down. Because this day is over. Jesus' work is over. The work that produces the fruit of the new creation, the work that produces the fruit of salvation is finished, is done. Now, what you got to do is you got to learn to sit down with Jesus because the scripture says that you're seated with him in heavenly places. But if you don't know that, you'll get up out of your seat and you'll try to do this. And I'm trying to do that. And I'm, I'm, I got to do this to be right with God. And I, I, oh, I hadn't read my Bible today. And when you, you see the, the test to see if you're in works or not is the emotions that happen in your life if you don't do it. The, <clears throat> And the truth is, people really aren't in love with Jesus. Because love, real love, is an incredible giving and receiving relationship. And it's not hard when you're in love. But a lot of people, are not, they're not in love with Jesus. Amen. They're, they're, they're under some obligatory, I got to do this if I really love him, I'll do this, you know. There's no love in that. There's no intimacy in that. 
if husbands, if your if your wife feels like she is under pressure to tell you that she loves you, you don't get anything out of that, right? And when we tell our spouse we love each other, we say, "Honey, I love you." You shouldn't feel an obligation to say it back, but yet we we do that, don't we? I love you. See, here's a test. The next time your husband or your wife tells you she loves you, just look at them and go, thank you. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to tell, tell me you love me back? And see, we, we, we carry that over to our spiritual life, and we think, yeah, God loves us, but we've got to love him back. Oh, we've got to get involved. We've got to love him back. If you love Jesus, you'll do this. If you love Jesus, you, that, their, their obligation is not in love. When I go on the mission field and I'm away from my wife for, for three or maybe four weeks at a time and, and or gone or two weeks or whatever, what are the emotions that I, that I feel about her? What kind of emotions do you think I feel about my wife when I'm away from her for, for several weeks? Desire. Excitement to see her again. Right? Love to hear her voice on the phone and and and. and well, what if, if you had to spend a month away from God, and you, didn't go, you couldn't go to church, you couldn't read your Bible, you couldn't do anything for God, what kind of emotions do you think the average person would experience? Condemnation? Guilt? Shame? See, they're not really in love with Jesus. They're under a system of religion. Because when you're in love with Jesus, you're in love with Him. You have a desire and a passion. You don't read the Word because you have to. You think, man, he speaks to me in his word. He talks to me. Of course I'm going to get in the word. Not because I have to, but because of desire. See, Peter was experiencing this kind of condemnation when he denied Jesus three times. And Jesus told him, he said, Peter, you're going to, before the cock crows three times, before the rooster crows three times, you're going you're to deny me. Before it crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And he did it once, and he thought, shoot. He did it twice, and he thought, gum." <laughs> he did it a third time, and the Bible said he cussed that time. <laughs> I ain't going to say that in here. <laughs> you know what Peter did? After it was all over, he woke up the next morning, and he looked at all the other disciples, and he said, I'm going fishing. You know what that meant? I quit. I quit this. I, I, I can't get a handle on this. You know there are millions of Christians today. That's if, if they really told you what they feel about church, that's probably what they tell you. I'm about ready to quit this stuff. Because it's all out of obligation. It's not out of love. If we could ever get the church to gather around love, oh my gosh. The world would be beating the door down to get in here. If we could just get the love right between one another. Not, I better give them a hug, because if I don't give them a hug, they might talk about me. But real love. And Peter went fishing. He quit. And he's out there fishing. And the next day, well, when Jesus was raised from the dead, the Bible says that Jesus called out to him from the shore. And he didn't recognize it was Jesus. And he said to him, and he's, he's fishing, you know, he's gone back to his old life, and 
And, P and Jesus says, hey, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And Peter thought, I've heard that before. I've heard this before. Well, let's do it. They threw the net out there. Been fishing all night, hadn't caught nothing. And all of a sudden, the net is so full, and Peter gets a revelation. It's the Lord. The one that I just got through denying three times. The one that I walked with and talked with, and he poured himself into me. He poured, he gave himself for me, and I didn't have the strength to keep my big mouth shut, and I denied him three times, and he's standing on the shore. And, and the scripture says, but you got to love Peter. He jumps, he doesn't even get the boat ready or get to the bank. He jumps out of the boat and he swims to the shore. And the scripture says that Jesus is on the seashore and he's prepared a meal for him. Which in Hebrew culture means everything's okay between me and you. And he gets there and they're all eating the fish. And you know it was good fish. Jesus cooked it. And, and he says to Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? And you can imagine the stuff that's going on in Peter's mind. Oh, do I love you? And he uses the word love, agape, which means to love with no strings attached. To give and give and give and expect nothing in return. It's the kind of love that God loves us with. A love that has no obligation in it. It's just a love that gives and gives and gives simply because I love you. Peter's sitting there and, and he says, Lord, you, you, you know that I love you. And he doesn't use the word agape. He uses the word phileo, which is translated friendship. So basically, here's how that went in our, uh, in our language. Jesus says, Peter... Do you love me with no strings attached, with the love that gives and gives and doesn't expect anything in return? Do we have that kind of relationship? Do we, are, we, are we in love, Peter? And Peter said, Lord, we're friends. But here's what Jesus said. Feed my sheep. I still got a call on you, Peter. I still got something for you. I'm still giving to you. Feed my sheep. Imagine what that's doing in Peter's heart. And then Jesus says again, I don't know how much time went by, but Jesus says again, hey, Peter, do you really love me with a love that has no strings attached, a love that gives and keeps on giving and expects nothing in return, a non-obligatory love? Is that the kind of love we have? And Peter said again, we're friends. We're friends. And you got to understand, Peter's experiencing major condemnation right now. And Jesus is not even responding to his condemnation. He's just loving him. He's validating. He's restoring. He's bringing an awareness of the call in the future and, the, and putting hope back in his heart that you, you got a part in this kingdom, Peter. Peter said, Lord, we're friends. And then a third time. A third time. I don't know how much time went by, but they're there eating. And Jesus looks at Peter and he doesn't use the word agape. He uses the word phileo. And basically it goes like this. 
Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, are we even friends? Are we even friends? What's going on in your heart, Peter? Jesus knew. And, and Peter doesn't even use the word phileo this time. He uses this word. He says, Lord, you know. He said, you know. Basically, Peter said, Lord, you know what's going on here. You know what I've done. You know me. You know everything. You know what's happening here. And the third time, Jesus says, feed my lambs. In other words, with all that going on in your heart and everything that you think you've done and everything that you think you've lost, the love of God is still restoring him into a place of power and fellowship to where on the day of Pentecost it was Peter that stood up. When Jesus was raised from the dead, you know what he told them? He said, go tell my disciples and Peter. Because he knew the condemnation that was taking place in his heart. He knew what it was going to take to break that condemnation. And he knew that if Peter stayed in that cycle of religion, he wouldn't be any better than the Pharisees and the Sadducees trying to do something to produce favor with God. And Jesus came to bring a gift of righteousness and a love that never, ever ends, no matter what you've done. He is standing, saying the same thing to you as he said to Peter. I got a plan for your life. I got things in store for you. If you could see what I could see, you would be shouting and rejoicing because I got something for you. And I don't care what you've done. I've got power that will restore you and clean you up. And this is the relationship of righteousness that we have with God. Did you find Colossians? Look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you. You know what religion will do to you? It'll cheat you. It'll cheat you out of the blessing of God. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world. You know what the basic principles of the world are? If you perform, you'll get rewarded. If you become the best salesman, you'll get the trophy. If, if you become the best sports player, you'll get the promotion, the trophy. You'll get, you, you'll get the, in the first round of the draft. We tell our kids, if you'll be good, Santa Claus will come. The basic principles of the world are based on a system of performance. And the kingdom is not based on that system. Amen. Beware lest anyone cheat you. For in him, verse, verse 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him. Let that settle down on the inside of you this morning. You are complete in him. What does that mean? When you're complete, nothing's broken. Nothing's missing. Everything's good. You're qualified to eat with Jesus on the seashore. Why? Not because you've made everything right. Because he made everything right. Amen? You're complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism. You were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you 
being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Past, present, and future. Watch this. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. What is that? That's the law. Everything that accused you, he wiped it out. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities. When was the devil defeated in your life? When he was raised from the dead. Here's, what, here, here's how the devil was defeated. Y'all, can y'all give me a few more minutes? I know it's, I know it's 12 o'clock. Because some people sit and look at you like, does he know what time it is? <laughs> this is important. When was the devil defeated? In your life? In all of our lives? When Jesus nailed the law to the cross. Why? Because the law is the only thing that accused you. And when you remove the law out of the way, there is no accusation. If you go over Revelations chapter 12 and verse 10, it says, Now the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before, before God day and night, has been cast down. When was the devil cast down? Because he's been cast down. Some of you think that's a future event. That happened when salvation came. Because it says, Now salvation, strength, and the power of our Christ, and, uh, and all the things that came to us in salvation, have come. It's come. And the accuser of our brethren is cast down. When Jesus took the law out of the way, it threw the devil out of the place of accusation. Because what can he accuse you of anymore? Nothing. You're complete. You've been made righteous. What can he accuse you of? Well, uh, you're not doing, uh, no, it's not, it's not about doing. See, in the old covenant, doing produced righteousness. In the new covenant, righteousness produces doing. But you've got to believe that you're righteous up front. You've got to believe it. You've got to confess it over your life. I remember the first time I got a hold of this, I looked in the mirror and I said, I am righteous. I guess. I wasn't confident of it. But now I'm confident of it, not because of anything that I've done. You're not righteous because you're doing righteous deeds. You're righteous because your Father has given you the gift of righteousness. And when you believe that, grace will begin to flow in your life. Power will begin to flow in your life. Anointing will begin to flow in your life. Our approach to God now is not through our works. Our access to God is not through what we do. Our access to God is through faith in the blood of Jesus and the finished work of Jesus. What he did qualified me to enjoy all of the blessings and the inheritance that my father gives me. And now I'm in the same position as Obed-Edom was. There is no law that causes disruption between me and God. Now I have peace with God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, not through me. I have peace with God through Jesus, and my life is qualified to receive everything that God has for me in the inheritance that belongs to me. Amen. Right now. 
Right now, you're qualified to be blessed. Right now, you're qualified to be healed. So much so that now all the promises of God are in him, yes and amen. God will never say no to you if you bring a promise to him because he qualified you in Jesus. Amen. You can come boldly before the throne of grace. Amen. You can come, you can come confidently. Why? Because I don't stand in my own righteousness. I stand in his. As if sin never existed before. With, and I can come in my time of need and receive grace and mercy. I can receive healing. I can receive whatever I need. I am qualified. Colossians chapter 1 verse 12 and 13 says, Giving thanks to God who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the light. Now, I don't care if you feel like it or not. The truth says you're qualified. You come to God based on what, how you feel, you'll fail every time. But if you come in faith in the finished work of Jesus, you will receive every time. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good and your mercy endures forever. And Lord, you are in love with me. And you have a future for every person in this room. And nobody is big enough to mess it up. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. And you're not counting our trespasses against us. Holding them over our head. But you have forgiven us of all trespasses. You have wiped them out of the way. And you have nailed the law to the cross. And you have given us righteousness by faith. And we have received it. And now we stand in a place of right standing. Righteousness. And so, Father, we expect the blessings of God to flow. Today, we expect tomorrow when we wake up on Monday, we expect it to be a day of blessing. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did. We stand in Him, Lord. We stand in Jesus. We stand complete in Him. We present ourselves before you holy and acceptable because you've made us that way. And Father, I thank you for people today, in this place today, those that are struggling with addiction and sin and, and struggling with, with maybe pornography, struggling with whatever the addiction is, I pray that they would, that they would relate to you like Peter did on that seashore and just receive. Just receive validation. Just receive grace to overcome those addictions. Power to overcome those things. And a knowing that you are so in love with them. We thank you for it. We give you praise for it. I want you to close your eyes and say this with me. Heavenly Father, I receive all of my inheritance right now because of Jesus. Healing. Blessing, Blessing, favor, favor provision, provision, strength, strength everything, everything because of Jesus, I receive it now. That's all I can do is just take it and receive it in Jesus' name. And just thank him for it.